thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Break out the bangers and mash because this week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, UK Month continues with a Royal Air Force Wing Commander who has flown the Bulldog, Takano, Hawk, Typhoon, (laughs) even the Airbus 320 and 350. But today he joins us to talk all about the Sepicat Jaguar. Crikey! Oh wait, wrong country. Hey Bernie, can you fix that? Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello and welcome to episode 133 of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm your host, Jello, and get your funny bone ready Clearly not for me, but because we have a great interview on the Jaguar coming up with an amazing guest. We'll get to that in a few minutes, but first, you know the drill. A little housekeeping to attend to, some announcements, and listener questions. Well, I hope you enjoyed last week's English Electric Lightning episode with Ian Black. I was since reminded that my one and only visit to the UK was to RAF Mildenhall. And again, that was just for a brief fuel stop in our F-18s before we made our way across the channel over there to the Netherlands for the exercise Frisian flag, which was a lot of fun. But yeah, we didn't stay. We didn't go out and party. So that's probably why I don't remember it much. And then as part of the announcements for that episode, I apparently guessed correctly that the plat footage of the F-35 crash aboard Carl Vinson would leak. And it did just a couple days later. Now, you won't find that footage on the Fighter Pilot Podcast social media because it's dealing in stolen goods, but my guess is you've seen it. I certainly have, and it's pretty awful, frankly. Don't know what caused it, but there was a glide slope deviation at a point where the LSOs, no matter how much pleading, and you can hear them, and it's just chilling, it's not going to save the day. And so the F-35 has what we call a ramp strike. And the debris goes in different directions. Some of it hit the folks on the LSO platform, and some of it damaged other aircraft. Thankfully, nobody was killed, but we lost a $100 million airplane, and we really beat up some people. Again, you won't see it on our channels, but I did comment on it. And that was on our Facebook channel, which really had quite an amazing response. And so someone found it and invited me the next day to be on a news channel, which is a first for me where I commented on the video. And of course, standard fighter pilot tradition. I was mad at myself for a few things, but everybody else said, no, you did great. So eh, maybe I'd do more of that. And again, that's what fighter pilots do. We pick out our own errors before anyone else has a chance to. Two more announcements. One is just a few days ago, if you're subscribed to the show, you saw it. We had a replay of Mr. Jeffrey Brain's happy hour discussion. We had that happy hour on Patreon way back in May of 2020, and then we replayed it in July of 2020. Well, we thought it'd be fun to break it out again because he was a Royal Air Force World War II pilot who didn't fight in the European theater 
as you might imagine, but rather over against the Imperial Japanese. So that was a really great discussion, and I'm told he's approaching his 100th birthday and doing well. So to Mr. Brain and the family, happy birthday from all of us here at the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Now, my last announcement, unfortunately, is a sad one. My wife, Beth, who you met on episode 34, The Homefront, well, her dad, my father-in-law, passed away February 7th at age 89. Monty Grimm of Rogers, Arkansas, was a tremendous man. And in many ways, I hate to admit it, he was more of a father figure to me than my own dad. He was a former Navy man, and we lay him to rest this coming Saturday, February 19th, and we will all certainly miss him dearly. So to the Grimm family, on behalf of the listener, if I may, our condolences and prayers. Now, as we look at our question and answer segment, our first one kind of ties into that a little bit. Now, Monty actually served in the Navy after the Korean War, but Liam from Ireland wants to know if a pilot that served when the Air Force wasn't yet a thing, i.e. the Army Air Corps, once they pass on, would they be commemorated slash laid to rest by the Army or the Air Force? I don't know, Liam. I would guess the Air Force, but it could be that service member's request before he passes, or it could be the family's choice or what's the most available. But if anyone else out there knows, please advise, but I'm going to go with the Air Force. Next, let's take a phone call. Hey, Jello, this is Zach calling from Savannah, Georgia. Found the podcast about two weeks ago, and I've been binging every night at work, so I'm on episode 60 trying to catch up. Anywho, I've got about a thousand questions. Forgive me if I continue to call. The two I have right now are, number one, with the war in the Middle East and the major role that CAS played with the pilots, did you guys find it hard to maintain your flight hours with BFM and just air-to-air combat? Did you find it challenging to keep up with training for that stuff? And number two, when it comes to our partner nations with NATO and all that, What did you think was the biggest difference between our pilots and their pilots? Was it their training or was it their actual aircraft and platforms? Thanks so much. Love the content. Keep it up. All right. Thanks for the question, Zach. You know, yes, when we're deployed, certain skills may atrophy a little bit, but there's a couple things we can do to combat that, if you will. Sometimes on the first event of the day, we might have a couple aircraft that we could even take the drop tanks off and do a quick, what you might call a yo-yo or a short cycle BFM or something else, just to try to stay proficient in some of those things if all you're doing is high altitude patrolling with bombs for close air support, let's say. Now, the Navy, at least, I don't know about the other branches, we have a TNR matrix, training and readiness. There is certain periodicity that you need for certain things. And so if you're current on everything, then you might be green or class one or cat one or category one on that. I don't remember the exact what they call it, but you'd be the most proficient, right? And then if you are starting to have folks that haven't flown something in a while, they might go yellow and you want to try not to go red, but you report that and then the higher ups know just how proficient or ready you theoretically are. When it comes right down to it, you can go out and do just about anything once you have enough experience in the aircraft. Now, from your second question's point of view, I just found the biggest difference was culturally and language-wise. As I've said before on this show, aviators the world over, in my opinion, at least military ones, we have a lot in common. And we share a lot of similar interests and we fear a lot of the similar things like looking dumb or, you know, dying or whatever, looking bad before you die is probably in that order. But I just think that for the most part, we fly different aircraft, we speak different languages, but they all speak English, thank goodness, because I'm an ugly American like most of us, we only speak English. So yeah, I think that's a good one. And then lastly, you know, Zach, if you really intend to ask all 1000 questions, yeah. 
you might consider signing up to support the show on Patreon. I'm just saying. All right, and one final thing for everyone who always has a good aircraft suggestion like the EA-18G Growler or the Prowler or the P3 or any of those, hey, look, if it was operational and we've not yet covered it, it's on the list. We just have to find a good guest and we have to get to it. And some will be a little sooner than others. Just bear with us. But yeah, if it's an obscure aircraft, we probably, and it wasn't operational, we probably won't cover it unless it's maybe like the XB-70 for Bomber Month or something. So we'll see. All right, enough fooling around. Let's get to the interview. Now, a couple quick caveats. First, I thought that John Sullivan might return from our Buccaneer episode because he flew so much of the Jag. And unfortunately, I just couldn't get him nailed down before this part. So I didn't know that when we recorded the interview. So you'll hear my guest kind of poke a little fun because my hope was that they could poke fun at each other on different parts of segments of the show here. But it didn't work out. So too bad. So the second thing is, for those of you who love or hate my analogies, well, good news, you got a good one coming up right off the bat. So with that, hey, producer, Bernie, let's roll the interview. All right, today to help explain the Sepicat Jaguar, hope I got that right, is Royal Air Force Wing Commander Diraj Basin, call sign D-Reg. Hello, D-Reg. Hi, how are you doing, Jello? (laughs) <laughs> Quite well, thank you. And Pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, here. Where is here? Because I'm in San Diego. You're not. Right now, I'm at Ramstein Air Force Base, Germany. Yeah, Fantastic. Deployed out from uh, the UK. All right. Not in Jaguars, because as we'll find out in a little bit, that's already retired, yeah? That's right. Still in service in India. And if they let me uh, borrow one, I'd be delighted to go and uh, rush around in it. And you could jump right in and start it up? Well, funnily enough, we have a restoration project going on in the UK where one is in fast taxi in condition. And it was only about two months ago when I last operated that thing. Uh, We got the engines running and shut it down again, did a little bit of a photo shoot, but I have had it 120 knots down the runway in full afterburner. Probably (laughs) that was about a year ago, I think now. It's a bit crude of an example, but I've always thought these high-speed test examples are like, oh, I'll just practice getting undressed and getting in bed, but we'll stop there. It's like, come on, didn't you want to just pull the stick back, so to speak, and uh, get airborne? The temptation and, of course, the (laughs) muscle memory was to do exactly Uh that, but it didn't have enough fuel on board even to complete a closed Ah. pattern and land again, and it probably would have been the last flight I ever did from a legal standpoint because it's not officially airworthy. That was the fastest aborted takeoff I've ever done. Oh, wow. Well, the uh, not enough fuel in the aircraft seems to me a very clever, shall we say, uh, to my previous example, iron-clad chastity belt. So there was no getting past desires. Anyway, let's move on from that. D-Reg, it's so good to meet you, and your friend speaks highly of you that we talked about before we hit record here. But anyway, Let's start with you. Where are you from? What did you do in the military? And I guess, what are you doing now as much as you're allowed to talk about? I am from uh, Yorkshire, up in the north of England originally. I spent probably all of my childhood, I'd say, from about the age of about five, wanting to be a fighter pilot. So I managed to do that thanks to the uh, nagging of my parents to do the sports, to do the homework, to do all of that kind of stuff. Join the cadets. Uh, the cadet forces in the UK start at 13. So that helps to orientate you towards military life and keep feeding your interests. I then did a bit of university time where, again, there's a scheme a bit like the ROTC scheme in the US. You can continue with your military development through university. 17 years active duty 
in the Royal Air Force. I then switched over to the reserves where I was half an airline pilot, half a flying instructor, half a cadet forces instructor, and half doing anything from individual to joint tactical training with the whole of UK defence. I then left the airlines only about, I suppose, 18 months ago and took up an active reserve role whereby I am now doing, again, joint operations and planning mostly with the Ministry of Defence. Does that involve any flying? I do still fly. I fly on basic trainers, teaching cadets how to fly. Okay. That's a separate role, but what I'm trying to do is advance interoperability between the Air Forces in Europe and the North American Air Forces, the Canadian Air Force and the USAF, and indeed all the Navy, Marines, etc. that have aircraft, and also a bit of work with ground forces as well to get them interoperable. So it's all about doing everything together now rather than in our individual domains of warfare. Gotcha. And then during your first 17 years of service, what did you do there? Mostly flying, I suppose, and which aircraft? Yeah, that's right. I started off doing officer training, which was probably the hardest part of my career, all that running around with rucksacks on and things like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then four years of flying training. I started off on the Bulldog. I then went to the Takano, the Hawk, and then ended up being selected for the Jaguar. Okay. The Jaguar, I did three years initially on a ground attack squadron then moved across to tactical reconnaissance. In fact, it was a dual role squadron. We did ground attack and tactical reconnaissance. I went off on the weapons course after that, having already become an electronic warfare instructor. I came back having done the baptism of fire that you're familiar with, uh, the weapons school, which we call the qualified weapons instructor course in the UK. All right. And then went back as the weapons officer on 41 fighter squadron, which the primary role was tactical reconnaissance. I then moved on to an air warfare role on promotion where I was uh, running, uh, in fact, I was the second in command of the tactics division of the uh, British Air Warfare Centre. Then back to the front line, in fact, front line training to be the chief of the weapons school for the Jaguar. Thereafter, it changed and changed and changed because the aircraft was slowly going out of service. So I went from being the boss of the weapons school to the boss of all Jaguar training to back to the front line, to then disbanding the force, having also done along the way, obviously some combat operations, but also some operational test and evaluation as well. A load of different staff roles on the Jaguar and the Typhoon primarily. And then I disbanded myself, of course, and went into the reserve. (laughs) Okay. Wow. So how many hours in the Jaguar? I got to remind myself to say it like that. I might just say the Jag at some point, but anyway. So that's what we call it. Yeah. So about two and a half thousand hours in the JAG. Total time for me is about 11,000, having done a bunch of airline work since then as well. Wow. All right. Well, and with all that tactics background, uh, I think we'll get along just fine because I still look highly upon my uh, Top Gun tour. But I got to go back to uh, something you said earlier, half this, half that. Now, I'm no mathematician. Actually, I am. I was a math major at UCLA, but I think you had about four halves there. So you uh, keep pretty busy, sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. In fact, I had the great pleasure and privilege of going and getting a, a medal off the Queen once. Oh, my. She gets a little briefing. Yeah, it was an MBE. She gets a little briefing about each person she's about to present the state award to. When I walked up to her, the first thing she said to me was, when do you get time to sleep? And the answer is about three hours a night. 
Okay. Well, that being said, it did take us a bit of effort to uh, get together here today. So I want to thank you in advance for your time that we're about to spend. But uh, Great pleasure. Well, D-Reg, uh, you know, I've got this list in front of me and you've been uh, briefed a little bit on what we're going to do. And sometimes I just, I don't know, I like to mix it up and change it up a little bit so the listeners don't get bored, I should say. Let's just talk about the Jaguar. I mean, what's the story? What is it? Where did it come from? What are we doing? And uh, just as much or as little as you want to tell us about, and I'll either interrupt or ask questions or fall asleep. You don't sound like someone <laughs> whose audience falls asleep very often, but right? Because this was an Anglo-French project from the beginning, and it stuck around a long time. So yes. I don't know. Let's just talk about the Jag. The Jaguar's origins are actually in tactical training. It was always conceived as it went through its invention as a tactical trainer. In fact, the ECAT part of SEPICAT is French for School of Combat and Applied Tactics. Essentially, they were talking about it being a tactical trainer prior to going on to frontline types. Turns out the airplane was a bit of a handful for that, but it was a natural selection process that had it become a trainer, then if you finished the course alive, then you'd passed it essentially because (laughs) it's quite a handful, the airplane, masses of character. I do love it to death. And having flown things, fly-by-wire aircraft, everything from Airbus 350 to the Typhoon, this airplane has a personality about it. On one hand, it will be good to you and it will handle really well and it'll be a pleasure to fly. On the other hand, it will absolutely tell you when it's unhappy. (laughs) We did end up crashing quite a few of them actually under various circumstances, some of which were to do with the regime in which we operated it, but some of them were to do with the actual design of the aeroplane. So an absolute bags of character, a little bit of a fish out of water, I would say, because initially it was a fish out of water having been designed as a trainer it then wasn't fit to be a trainer so they turned it into a combat aircraft and then having turned it into a combat aircraft that was optimized essentially for low level bad weather strike missions we found ourselves up you know in the 20 to 25000 foot bracket in the wheel doing close air support over places like bosnia herzegovina so it changed and changed and changed all the way through its life as well that would also apply to the technical aspects of the airplane mm. which continuously changed well so any student of history can tell you that the french and the english have had their bouts over the centuries but here in the 60s when this was designed you guys decided to work together and that's one of our listener questions from scott how did that happen was that just serendipity or was it forced upon by uh, higher ups like hey we need to work with them or it just seemed efficient but how did that come about yeah it's all about efficiency i think it's all about mm. some commonality of purpose initially with the requirement for a new aircraft and then the fact that you could combine the power of two different defense contractors and the investment of two different governments would allow you to with a consortium produce an airplane that one or the other country on its own couldn't produce whether it be for financial reasons or whether it be for design and manufacturing capacity reasons and of course we've gone down that line a lot recently with the typhoon being a four nation consortium mm. and the our new transporter the a400 being a seven nation consortium and at the time, like today, right, with the internet and better communications, it's, I think, relatively easy to have those types of relationships. Was there any challenge with the production or assembly between the two back in the late 60s, early 70s? 
Very much so. And of course, a lot of that was also down to things like us working in inches and the French working in millimeters and such like. So yes, absolutely. There were challenges all the way through with things like language, things like technical methodologies. In fact, if you get in any Jaguar today, even the one that I talked about taxiing down the runway, that is a British Jaguar through and through. But the afterburner nozzle indicators, the actual how do I put it, the units of measure and the description of that dial, or those two dials, because it's a two-engine aeroplanes, they're written in French. So it actually says nozzle, and underneath it, it says tuyère. So uh, <laughs> absolutely, it's, it's a strange beast, but I do love it. Well, it was also built in India for a time, yeah, right? Still being built under license in India, yeah. Wow. They took the license to build it. And actually, what India have done with that aeroplane is taken it up far beyond what we ever did. The Navy variant of the Indian Jaguar has a radar in it, the Matra Gav, which you'd find also in something like a Super Etondard. That supports their Exocet missile. They've also done an upgrade called Darin 3, which is all about the avionics and the navigation attack system in the aircraft. So it's cracking on the old beast in India and a lot of engine upgrades along the way as well for all of us. Sure. Well, and that's to be expected, right? Everything seems to improve as we go. The technology, it's hard to get in there and change maybe the aerodynamics or flight control surfaces because then you have to do so much new testing. But changing out the displays or adding a radar or changing the engines or adding weapons can all happen. And we've talked about that quite a bit on this show, so that makes sense. All right, so a trainer that wasn't suitable for students, that's funny. What did it find then later its bread and butter role was? If it was mostly air-to-ground, I'd like to talk a little bit about, did you get a chance to hassle in it air-to-air? But what would you say is the Jaguar's bread-and-butter role? Yeah, the Jaguar ended up becoming a bomber, essentially. It was optimized for low-level, straight-line, and in the days of the Cold War, West Germany to East Germany, fairly short range. Go across there, drop some bombs, whether they be at the time conventional or small nuclear weapons, and then come back for tea and medals. (laughs) It changed and changed and changed. The aeroplane became, after that, a reconnaissance aeroplane. This was strictly low-level. Again, it was designed for the West German, East German planes because what you get over here, and I'm sitting here right now, of course, in Germany, is a tendency for good weather underneath a 500-foot cloud base. Mm -hmm. So you get this uniform cloud base under which you can sneak aeroplanes at extremely low-level quite fast and penetrate west to east, east to west in order to do your job. So essentially, the tactical reconnaissance role, with the addition of a reconnaissance pod on the center line, it would go out and find targets. If you then drag that forward into the 70s and and into the 80s, what it started to do was quite a lot of expeditionary roles. So for example, 41 Squadron would go up to Bardafoss in North Norway, that's 69 degrees north, operating down to minus 40 degrees centigrade, doing reconnaissance missions off the North Cape into the Atlantic Ocean, north of Norway and to the northwest of Norway. In the meantime, you'd find 54 and 6 Squadron. Their deployment airbase was out in Tierstrup in Denmark, and their job was to do air interdiction and close air support as well. So it kept doing that at low level, and then as tactics changed, we added in medium-level close air support, medium-level reconnaissance, precision-guided munitions. We did add an air-to-air capability, which you mentioned before, 
We also added incrementally a lot of electronic warfare capabilities, mainly for self-defense rather than electronic attack missions. And how did it do at close air support? This is, again, one of our listener questions that I'm going to just try to sprinkle in as we go today. But our listener uh, and Patreon supporter, Joe, says, how was it able to do that? Was it a good CAS platform or did it have some struggles there? Yeah, it was a challenging CAS platform, I would say. And it took a lot of training. You know, some people were good at it. Some people were not so good at it. The environment was challenging in the first place because we were doing everything at kind of 250 feet down to 100 feet AGL, <laughs> anything below 450 knots and the wings stopped working. Essentially, it was all fast and low in weather, comms problems associated with being that low, right. a air-to-air threat potentially that you're having to manage at the same time, surface-to-air threats, etc., etc. So it's kind of all going on. But fundamentally, we couldn't do this whole wheel around the target because of threats and because of the size of the wings, etc. So you tended to stand off a little bit while you got your brief from the uh, joint terminal attack controller. You'd set everything up, rushing over the target. And once you got two wards or to the target, it was a supremely accurate bomber. Whether it was with dumb munitions, as we used to call them, of course, or precision-guided munitions, if you saw the target, if you could see the target early enough to get the weapon aiming on, you were going to hit the thing. Uh, there was also an element of variety of weapons. So we had a couple of 30 millimeter cannons on board. We had the ability back then to use cluster bombs, to use general purpose bombs up to 1,000 pound class. We also had rockets uh, similar to the Hydra rockets, but a little bit faster. They were the Bristol Aerospace CRV-7 rocket. We had a variety of weapons that we could use in the close air support role. But yeah. of course, one of the great weapons was just noise. True. When a fast jet screams overhead fast enough, looking aggressive enough, and you know every pylon's full of something, then quite often we could just scare people into submission with the very presence of the aircraft. Deterrence. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. Dereg, your uh, initial response to my question reminded me of when I was a student in the FA-18, and I happened to do that at a Marine squadron in El Toro, Southern California, before it closed. Our whole class, and we were a tight group, you know, because you work hard together and then you have fun on the weekends, but for whatever reason, our whole class was awful at CAS <laughs> when we got to that part. And so they came in, I can remember them getting our class together and basically berating us for how poorly we were doing. And it's not like we were flying together. It was just one of these random statistical things that we all just happened to struggle with it. So they started putting instructors in our back seats. And I think I was one of the few who actually did not get a, you know, a down or a rego or something like that, whatever you want to call it. But I just remember getting lambasted by the instructors for close air support. And we probably deserved it because arguably that's one of the most complex missions I think any fighter pilot will do for all the reasons you just stated, right? You could be low and fast. There could be surface-to-air or air-to-air threats. You've got to be there on time. You have to employ the right weapon from the right direction. CAS is challenging, but boy, when you get some proficiency, it's a lot of fun, too, because it's such a puzzle. Absolutely. I mean, the best way to describe it, whether it's CAS, whether it's strike coordination, reconnaissance, or combat search and rescue missions, we both know that you need about six hands to be able to do that well, <laughs> because of course you're flying the airplane as well as writing down the nine lines you've taken off without knowing your target, etc. So yeah, it's fantastically challenging, but fantastically rewarding when you've got that currency. And it's the same with things like strafing, air-to-air refueling. 
Oh yeah. If you do it enough, you get very good at it. If you don't do it, then it's that horrible feeling in your stomach that, you know, um, am I going <laughs> to underperform today? <laughs> Well, you're also making a case for navigators because Blackie and I on the last episode on the lightning somewhat berated those folks. And so, you know, there's another two sets of hands, right? So in another brain, but did you do much flying in multi-crew aircraft? Only in the Hawk, where on a couple or three occasions I flew with a navigator. It's quite interesting, actually, because when you put a pilot in the back, they tend to not really say anything unless you're about to die, and then they say something quite loudly. But the navigators are continuously sort of talking, coaching, delivering information. Most of the time, in fact, on all occasions but one, I hated it, because (laughs) right at the point that you're thinking about something, they say something and you lose your train of thought 15 seconds train of thought is three miles down the road isn't it so essentially i was very grateful for being in a single seat airplane and i'd say that anyway to banter all the navigators out there (laughs) i did once fly with a navigator who's here with me at ramstein actually he's called jason he was a mind reader right at the point that you needed to know something and you started to search for it in your own cockpit. He just said it. Nice. It was amazing. He was one of those guys who didn't say anything until you just, I wonder if, and he'd just say it. So when you've got a good navigator and you work well together, yes, it's absolutely fascinating and it's absolutely amazing to see that collaboration and cooperation. You know, what we colloquially know as using the force that's right i did love my little single seat airplane and we had a lot of fun in pubs with navigators oh sure usually with us usually laughing and them usually being quite angry with us (laughs) isn't that normally how it goes all right d reg so the world has decided that the term karen means like complaining woman i guess or something i don't Mm -hmm. know it seems unfair to all the karens out there but let's start a trend here on the fighter pilot podcast so now jason will be the term for the really good navigators out there. So uh, yeah, kudos to Jason. Okay. Good. I'll tell him that. As soon as we finish, I'll text him. <laughs> <laughs> he honestly, a brilliant, brilliant guy. Yeah. Oh, and I've flown with some good ones too in the Super Hornet. And absolutely, yeah. it adds value for sure. All right, moving on. So what variants have you flown of the Jaguar? And, and what are some ones that are out there? Because I know some went to the boat, some went to England, some went to France, some went all over the place. What's your experiences? So I started off on the Jaguar GR1A. In fact, obviously, you start in the two-seat variant. You do about four trips in that, and then you're cleared onto single-seaters. So we started off, my first flight was in a Jaguar T2A, which was the, it came in as a GR1 and a T2, and then it changed to GR1A and T2A, which was some navigation system and some laser rangefinder, et cetera, modifications. That aircraft endured from about the late 70s all the way through to the mid-90s. We moved then on to the Jaguar GR1B and the T2B. Essentially, the trainer variant was not a war-goer. There were many aspects of its design that made it non-war compatible. So, for example, the lack of electronic warfare equipment or an air-to-air refueling probe. So, The GR1B and the T2B were essentially upgrades to uh, be able to use targeting pods and precision-guided munitions. And then we went on to the GR3 and the T4, and that was a further upgrade, which was a lot to do with the displays in the cockpit, 
and a further upgrade to the reconnaissance capability to a medium level one and more upgrades to precision guided munitions. The final variant in the UK then was the GR3A and the T4A. And what that added was better displays and better electronic warfare systems and integration of all the different... (laughs) So people will laugh about the Jaguar's cockpit being all sorts of extra bolt-ons, mostly Velcroed onto the combing, and the combing grew and grew and grew until you practically couldn't see out of the front. So the (laughs) GR3A and the T4A upgrades tidied that up a little bit. Again, avionically, it was a great aeroplane. We also got some upgraded engines at that stage. Did it progressively get heavier as time went on? That seems to be the What is it? Gold plating, right? Everything just gets heavier and heavier. Yeah, it got a little bit heavier, I would say. And the power that we gained from the new engines marginally increased its performance. But what we got from the engines was a little bit more surge slash stall, I think you call it in the US, stall margins. And Mm. also it was a little bit better optimized for medium level efficiency. But really you could barely tell the difference. It never had the greatest thrust-to-weight ratio. And uh, of all the upgrades we enjoyed talking about, bigger wings would have been great as well. Well, that would have changed everything, right? There's always a trade-off in airplanes, like a balloon. If you can squeeze a balloon to try to get it closer together, it just comes out the other side. So bigger wings might have meant different performance or different stall or who knows what characteristics. But anyway, sticking with variants, D-Reg, you said that earlier the Indian Air Force added some different things and still flying, still producing. So I'm sure they're making it uh, as nice as they can. But what about the French? They took theirs to the carrier, right? So they had one, I think, a little strengthened up for that. That's right. The Jaguar M, it didn't get past the prototype stage, actually, but they did put a bigger landing gear on it. It went to the carrier, did some trials, and I think right at that same time, it was competing with the uh, Super Etondard or the Etondard Mm. and subsequently the Super Etondard. So they ended up going down a different route at that point. So the Jaguar M never made it into service. Yeah, The Indians we've talked about, the Omanis had the Jaguar. Mm -hmm. They ended up with the Jaguar S and the Jaguar B, which was broadly equivalent to our GR1A and the T2A. But then they subsequently upgraded it, and actually their uh, two-seaters were much better than ours. They ended up with the Jaguar SU and the BU, which stood for upgrade. I actually instructed on those aircraft because one of my roles when I was the boss of the weapons school in the UK was also to go and do the standards and evaluation on the Omani Air Force, Jaguar Force. And I read that Ecuador and Nigeria also had some Jags. Yeah, that's right. I didn't really get any experience of those, but I think Nigeria didn't really fly them a lot at all. And Ecuador, I believe, kept them a lot longer than we did. I don't believe that they upgraded it or they upgraded those aircraft significantly. But there were lots of variants of between engines, avionics, the presence of a laser, and what people did with their two-seaters made them all, I want to say, subtly different. But in the way you'd operate it, they were significantly different in their capabilities. Well, let's talk about what it looks like, D-Reg, because to me, I mean, it kind of just looks like a typical fighter. But if you really look at it, right, you've got the high wing, the single tail, twin engine, and it's got some relatively, I would say, distinct intakes. Mm. But how would you, if someone didn't know anything about fighters or you couldn't show them a picture, how would you discuss the appearance of the Jag? 
Yeah, so the wings, where the wings are, where the intakes are, and that ridiculously enormous landing gear were all because <laughs> it looks a bit funny on the ground. Some people like it, some don't. Mm. So essentially, back when this thing was in its heyday was the Cold War. We were always expecting that the first thing to go if the balloon went up was going to be the runways. So one of the things we did around all our airfields was to have lots of alternate runways, long straight taxiways, long straight roads, even outside the airfield and so on and so forth. But in the worst case scenario, you're left with no concrete surfaces, in which case the only thing left was grass. And this aeroplane was capable of taking off and landing from grass. It was also capable of crossing from grass onto concrete, back onto grass, onto concrete, and just hauling itself airborne. So essentially, it needed an enormous landing gear. It needed high wings and high intakes to avoid ingesting grass or mud or stones into the intakes. So it's essentially very FOD resistant, as you and I would know it, foreign objects and debris. Mm -hmm. And it was very good. In fact, John, who we talked about earlier, was the last person to taxi the aeroplane on grass when we landed all at Cosford. He taxied it in over the grass and the aeroplane was completely happy with that. <laughs> uh, the other thing about where the wings are, of course, is it allows the uh, aircraft to be reloaded with new weapons, new tanks very, very quickly. So you don't have to crawl around underneath it. All of the engineers, the armorers are upright and they're loading these things on. In the case of practice bombs, they'd load them on by hand. So the aircraft was always designed to be very, very fast on the turnaround. Refuel, reload, rearm, new pilot if necessary, or just new maps to the pilot already in the cockpit. And you could get this thing away, in theory, in 25 minutes from coming back empty of everything. You could have it refueled, right. rearmed, and away again very, very quickly. And of course, the small wings we always used to laugh about, but the small, skinny, very swept wings meant two things. You could go super fast in a straight line, but also if you're going super fast in a straight line in terrible turbulence, this would be actually quite a smooth ride. So oh. rushing around in the mountains, everyone else was being shaken to death and we were quite happy just <laughs> flying along, not really noticing. Uh, the disadvantage came when you went into a turn, of course. Well, you talked about the FOD resistance of the placement of the intakes, but I want to ask you, did you ever taxi around with your canopies up? Because I used to fly the A4 Skyhawk as a trainer, and the intakes were right behind the canopy. So if you ever opened the canopy when you weren't supposed to, and you had a loose kneeboard card or something else, whoosh, right down the intake it went. So was that a concern for the Jag at all? It was a bit of a concern. We weren't strictly allowed to taxi with the canopy open. But everyone did from time to time because it's fun, you know, to put your elbow out on the side of your jet fighter and go along as if you're in a Mustang or something like that. But some people did lose maps down the intake. And of course, all my tornado brethren will be very quick to say that the Jaguar's engines were so lacking in power that it couldn't suck in anything more than a bat. <laughs> so if it was your kneeboard, that was definitely staying on the dash. No problem. So was it standard practice to land on grass or take off from grass? You said GAS was the last one, but did you do that? No, I didn't. It was very rare. And whilst the airplane was completely capable of doing it, there were a couple of things that stopped us. The first was having the runway correctly prepared, the grass runway, which was only a peacetime restriction, of course. You could land on an unprepared field. Sure. 
The big thing was, of course, the bounciness of grass and so on made it quite fatiguing on the aeroplane. So to preserve the fatigue life of the aeroplane, we refrained from doing that. We did have a quick look at some highway strips in Poland once when we were there, which I think would have been an excellent training. But as it turns out, with the rules that we have in the RAF, you had to deploy something like seven fire engines and two ambulances to be allowed to use the highway strip. So that didn't happen in the end, sadly. I see. Well, risk tolerance has only gotten less and less over the years. You can't do anything anymore without a helmet and seat belts and everything else, but that's probably for the better. Hey, but I wanted to get back to the high wing, and I agree with you, right? You can land, pull up a little carted vehicle with bombs or missiles, and right straight up they go. But at some point, some genius uh, decided to put some things on top. And I'm just curious if you could talk about that. And you know, <laughs> yes. we talked a little bit about it on the lightning with Blackie. But one thing I didn't ask him is how on earth did you like have a cherry picker or something to like swing someone over the wing to then load it down? But let's talk about the overwing stuff. Essentially, this was a French <laughs> modification originally, but we uh-huh. ended up with it right about the time of the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, I should say. The reason was, essentially, if you stuck to the underwing pylons, you could either carry a missile or your self-defense ECM pod, electronic countermeasure pod, and your chaff pod. There came a point when we went into Iraq that we needed both. You needed a chaff pod under the wing, you needed a ECM pod under the other wing, but you also mm-hmm. needed to carry a couple of Sidewinder AIM-9 Lima as they were. We started off with the AIM-9 Golf, we ended up with the AIM-9 Lima air-to-air missile on top of the wing. And the reason it went on top of the wing, because we had no pylons left <laughs> underneath. To add another pylon was going to be very, very difficult from a design point of view. We'd have loved them on the wingtips or something like that. That would have been a good look, like you had on the Hornet, in fact, and and still do. But we ended up on top of the wing because you could very easily change the wing fence, which was about halfway out on the wing, for a pylon. And then you put your rail on top of the pylon, and then you put your missile on top of the rail. And you're absolutely right. It was a massive cherry picker and two guys walking around on top of the wing to get that thing reloaded. So I fired two... AIM 9s in my career, both in training. It was quite a thing when it goes past your ear. Oh, yes. Because it is absolutely level with your eyeline when it goes. So once they made that adaptation, that was fairly commonplace to have the overwing missiles? Yeah, we always flew with them on combat missions with live missiles. We obviously took live missiles and sometimes telemetry missiles to the range for training. And when we didn't do that, we would have what's known as an acquisition round in the UK. And the acquisition round, you'll be familiar with them. It's just the seeker head with then a dummy missile body at the back so that you could practice using the air-to-air missiles but not accidentally shoot somebody. We would call that a CADM for a captive air training right. missile. And, and yes, it just That's had it. a seeker, yeah. no warhead, no uh, rocket, anything like that. Then our airborne instrumentation pod would also go on the overwing pylon because, of course, those took the form of a Sidewinder missile, as you'll be familiar with. Right. So for training so that you can debrief and see where you are, et cetera. Okay. That's it. Let's just keep on with the uh, weapons, though. So you already said dumb weapons, as you stated, right, just simply because they're not smart weapons. But it seems like it carried just about everything. And uh, we talked about some nuclear shapes as well but how about any kind of forward firing missiles maybe what we would call a maverick or a harm or anything like that we never got there with guided missiles for air to ground employment we were 
pretty much restricted to the CRV-7 rocket and the guns. So the rocket was a very useful uh, weapon because you could change the warheads on it. Typically, we would fly with high-explosive incendiary semi-armor piercing. But the roles of those rockets could be many and varied. Oh, yes. So anything from uh, anti-shipping type roles all the way through to anti-armor type roles. Uh, so air-to-surface in the maritime environment or air-to-surface in the land environment. That weapon was, it was super fast and super powerful. So you were firing this thing out at five miles as a maximum. Wow. And you were actually limited by the ranging capability of the laser that supported the weapon aiming. So it was a good weapon. And you could, although we didn't so much on this aircraft, change out the warheads for anything from flechette armor piercing all the way through to unitary warheads and right now our apache attack helicopter uses a variety of those things if you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground then air corps aviation is the place for you since 2008 air corps aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to world war ii their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. And you talked about the laser, but I assume that was simply to make sure you had the best ballistics and aiming for the aircraft, because I think they're starting to put laser seekers on rockets, but guessing uh, that wasn't the case for the JAG, or, or maybe it was. No, indeed. So the laser that was inherent in the aircraft that was internal was for ranging and for marked target seeking. So for close air support, the JTACs on the ground could point a laser at a target and our laser would acquire that spot oh. and we'd be able to effectively adjust our weapon aiming to where that laser was pointing. We could then range find off it for weapon aiming. And if we ever needed to uh, employ laser-guided weapons, so now something that's going to seek a laser spike, then that mm -hmm. would be a targeting pod that was fitted to the aircraft on the centerline pylon. Gotcha. And as you said, there are a lot of different warheads for the rockets, including uh, white phosphorus maybe for marking. Don't know if you did any of that. Or just inert, just a piece of ballistic metal in there so that you could have the right <laughs> trajectory of the rocket when you're doing it in training. So yeah, rockets are a lot of fun. I only had a chance to shoot once. And uh, there was some drama around that I won't bore you with right now. But getting back to the Desert Storm, were you a participant in that? And did you get a chance to employ some of the weapons we just described? Sadly, in Desert Storm, I was still in officer training. So they had us okay. on alert to go and do ground defense of the airfields, actually, <laughs> which we luckily never got to do because I'd have been terrible at that. Well, I appreciate the kind answer because what you could have said is, gee, Jello, do I look that old? <laughs> <laughs> I already know I look that old. <laughs> All right, fine. Some of my friends were, in fact, everyone that flew the Jaguar in that war is a friend of mine in some shape or form. Oh, good. So it's a very small community. Oh, I'm sure. And I'm sure it's very tight as well. All right, good stuff. I kind of asked about it earlier, but we didn't really uh, 
get to it, but did you do much air to air just for fun and training? Like again, the wing that you described great for going fast and low, but usually when you do one turn, it's over. But did you get a chance to hassle much in the uh, Jaguar and how did it do? We did a lot in training, actually. And again, it was great fun and it was challenging because you had to use the airplane to its strengths. Mm. So this was all about tactics now. It wasn't just like pull the stick back and try and outturn your adversary. And I did mm. dissimilar air combat against everything from MiG-29s through F-15s oh, wow. all the way through to the F-104 starfighter and of course every one of those aircraft that you would fight against you would employ different tactics that optimized our capability and minimize theirs so typically we would enter a turning fight with an f-104 because it was just about the only thing in the sky that we could outturn but of course once they realized that's what we were doing they'd light the burner and go into space Disappear, yeah. So, yeah and then run out of fuel and come back of course so um in the case of the eagles the thing that we found with them back then was that they didn't really know when to stop looking at their radar scope and start using the window. So what we mm. try and do is exploit a breakdown in their situational awareness and get in and amongst them before they switched from that radar mentality to that visual dogfight mentality. And every now and then we'd sneak in and have a little shot I think we're pretty much happy that we died 25 miles before that with the AMRAM that was, <laughs> that was coming the other way. Yeah. We did a lot of that. And again, it taught you things. It might not have been that we'd ever have got into that kind of fight, mm -hmm. but it taught you how to build situational awareness. It taught you how to think in three dimensions. And it gave you confidence that certainly when I was flying around in northern Iraq, for example, and there was a threat from Mirage F1s, Fox Bats, fish beds and floggers that actually if they did come up and you ended up in a fight because uh, your escort had not turned up on time you know you felt confident that you'd have a chance but a lot of that was about the good old lose sight lose the fight mentality mm -hmm. that we would exploit because it was a very skinny airplane when it was pointing at you so we'd try and effectively stay invisible sneak in take a shot and uh, come home a hero the uh, engines probably weren't very smoky. I didn't read anything about that. So that helped you, right? A little bit more smoky in dry power and a little right. bit less smoky in afterburner. So notwithstanding the infrared signature of putting your afterburners on, oh, true. I would try and enter the fight with a little bit of burner in because then there wouldn't be smoking. Your tales of BFM here remind me of at Top Gun at the end of a mission, if we had a little extra gas, uh, if we were especially the adversaries, we could do a little bit of dogfighting uh, before we went home. And invariably, you know, comparable pilots, same airplane, especially in the Legacy Hornet, you would just end up above the hard deck, just groveling around with no advantage, out of speed, out of everything. I have to think for you, if you were fighting another Jaguar, it's a similar idea. I'm, I'm guessing you didn't have a lot of excess thrust if you did start pulling hard to really uh, keep your speed up, huh? Yeah, that was pretty similar. But what I'd go back to is that thing about it must be so nice to have spare fuel on the jet to do anything because we never had any of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't a whole lot, but yeah. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I mean, uh, decent pilot, same airplane. You just end up in a stalemate. And then it came down to tactics. But of course, you could see the other person employing tactics across the circle. So uh, it was quite hard. You were reliant on the other pilot making a mistake.
Yes. And then hopefully being able to be aware of that and capitalize on it. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, let's keep talking about the flying performance of the thing. And I was advised by a friend of yours to ask about high, hot, and heavy operations, right? So if you're, <laughs> <laughs> if you're somewhere up with a high altitude and it's a hot day and you're carrying a lot of stores, what's that like in the Jaguar? It was exciting. Oh, Sometimes in a good way. It was a long takeoff roll. I think the longest that we calculated was some of the red flag missions we went out on. We spent 42 seconds on the runway before the thing would haul itself into the air. So you're talking about certainly a Joyed El Col when we were doing the Bosnia job up in uh, Nellis. We would find ourselves, and indeed in Insulik to an extent as well, in very hot, high and heavy environments. Mm-hmm. The aeroplane would use you know, a good 9,000 feet of runway to get airborne. As soon as you pulled back on the stick, the thing would fly, but immediately you had about 17 units of angle of attack on the airplane, so it would also (laughs) slow down. So then you're staggering into the air, and you need to get the wheels up to reduce the drag. But of course, when you select the wheels up, all the doors open to get the wheels in, and it slows down even more. So then you're (laughs) waiting for the wheels to come in, and then you expect it to be a bit more sprightly, but you're usually sorely disappointed and spend your... (laughs) You know, the next sort of two minutes, I would say, below 200 feet, because speed is life. We all know that in fighters. So in essence, it's speed or height, never both. So um, (laughs) luckily, we were quite happy at 100 feet, you know, hopping over electricity pylons and things like that just to get the speed on. And then, of course, you would speed up and you'd have to bring the flaps in. And as soon as you brought the flaps in, then you'd increase the drag because your AOA went up and you'd start slowing down again until you could stagger away. And it was uh, pretty much a five-minute process of getting to a point where you thought you were somewhat safe. Oh, dear. I'm picturing a gentleman who maybe has stayed at the pub too long. And by the time he stumbles through the door at the end of the night, it takes him a little bit to kind of get his footing and bearing uh, as he makes his way down the sidewalk. So (laughs) absolutely followed by immense rejoicing that you're still alive. That's right. (laughs) Well, that being said, were takeoff mishaps relatively common or... We had a few. Some of them, we ended up saving the airplane by dropping all the stores off the bottom of it, which, of course, Uh, immediately lightened the airplane and reduced the drag. They didn't all end up that well, I have to say. So, you know, absent friends, uh, a toast to them. We used to say on the F-18 that the button that would do what you just described was called the Admiral's Doorbell. Because if you did that, you would have to go to the Admiral and explain what you did. So if you push the doorbell button, you better be (laughs) ready to explain yourself. Don't expect tea and biscuits when you go there to the office. (laughs) That's right. Let alone tea and metals. Okay. Yes. One of my uh, listener questions is from Nigel, who wanted to know about flying with two bags, as some call it. We would call it double bubble on the F-18. But external tanks, how did that do for either range or performance? And I think anyone who flies can answer this, and they're smacking their heads that I'm even asking you. But for the uninitiated, right, I always say it's like when you're a kid coming home from grade school, and the school bully is trying to chase you, if your backpack is full of books, that's a lot more difficult than if you're not even carrying one. But did you fly much double bubble? And uh, what was that like? And it obviously helped your fuel. Yeah, it was pretty standard to fly with two tanks on the airplane. Each tank carried another 1,000 kilograms of gas, 2,200 pounds. It was better 
with two tanks. So you could probably get about 20 to 30 minutes more fuel out of the airplane if you carried two tanks. The strange thing was, though, that when you added a third drop tank on the centerline, mm. that tended to burn as much fuel as it took to carry it. So you didn't really gain much by putting that third tank on. The other thing about them, of course, is that they were drop tanks. So the theory goes in wartime, once they were empty, you would drop them. And then the aeroplane would get the best of both worlds, the reduced drag from not having them on, but you've taken the benefit of the fuel. We didn't really do that much, only in self-defense if we were being attacked, right. because, of course, later on, our combat missions tended to go on longer and longer because of the demands of the environment. So we used to go back and refuel, refuel, refuel again. And so you wanted to keep the tank so that you got another two tons of fuel off the tanker. But we all had to remind the youngsters that when it's time for them to go, it's time for them to go. You know, they're called drop tanks, not keep tanks for a reason. <laughs> the uh, aircraft carriers that I always served on had rows and rows of them in the hangar bay up on the walls. And I always thought, yeah, you know, okay, that's what it's for. But yeah, in reality, I think I brought every single, I'm sure I did, uh, drop tank back. But Top Gun would have, for example, a policy or recommendations, if you will, that are, hey, if you're in combat and you get to this let's say altitude or airspeed because you're re reacting to something, well, then you could start by jettisoning those. And that was a whole different button than the button I described before. The uh, Admiral's doorbell gets rid of everything. Yes. But you've got a selective button where you can say, okay, I'll just start with these tanks because they typically will empty first and now they're just extra drag out there. So get rid of them if you can. Yeah. All right. How about single engine? Did you ever fly it much single engine because you either had to or wanted to or... We used to practice with it. We had to practice single engine because uh, it was one of our currencies. So I think if okay. I recall correctly, it was two a month that we had to practice oh. single engine landings and single engine go arounds. Single engine, it wasn't very uh, much fun at all, really. It was a get you home capability, I would say. Okay. And the get you home capability even then you had to manage your weight and you had to manage your maneuver. We go back to boldface drills in the uh, checklist where boldface means you have to memorize the drill rather than read it off the checklist. And of course, the boldface drill for single engine or losing an engine, turning final below 500 feet was a single line boldface and it said eject. Because if you lost your engine turning below 500 feet, you were not going to recover the airplane in time to fly away. It was very much a get-you-home capability. You need to use the other one in burner. And I've got one friend called James who ended up in the glider version of the Jaguar twice, actually. Wow. Because the engines were prone to surging. And sometimes if the surge locked in, effectively, you've got to shut down the engine and restart it. So he did have to do that once. In fact, twice I lie off the tanker. And uh, yeah, he's still with us today. So uh, well done, James. <laughs> fantastic all right now james and jason are our heroes of this show so anyone else with a j name will be looking for you when you think back of your jaguar flying career is there one particular mission that stands with you as far as memorable either in a good way or a bad way there's a lot of memories actually and um <laughs> as you would expect. But there was a friend of mine called Rob, and I was taking him on his first ever combat mission. We were in northern Iraq. As we go in, he's on the left of me. We used to, always used to fly about two miles line abreast. Because you can't see behind and below yourself in a Jaguar. It's all metal. Uh, so effectively, okay. when we fly two miles line abreast, we're looking underneath each other and behind each other to give that cross cover. He was on the left, so he should have been looking right and beneath me. And I happened to be 
be looking right underneath me and a surface-to-air missile came up. It wasn't ever guiding on me, but it happened to come up my right-hand side, go over the top of my aeroplane, and then it kind of went squiggly and disappeared uh, quite a way above me. And I didn't really have time to say anything on the radio about this at the time. So having watched this thing go and understanding that it wasn't a threat to us, I just left it. And when it burnt out, I said to him, hey, did you see that? And he came back on the radio and said, see what? And I thought, you know what? Never mind. So it's a really hilarious, you know, coming in and out of Bosnia, doing our replacements, two ship coming back, two ship going out, yeah. uh, and quoting the Battle of Britain movie on the radio. And it was all the silly stuff, to be honest. Yeah. I remember the scary stuff, and I remember the silly stuff. But that was yeah. the beauty of the work hard, play hard culture that we had, that we really enjoyed our airplanes, and we really enjoyed being in those kind of crazy situations and making light of them. So if Rob had been either a Joe or a John, I'm sure he'd have been all over it. But, uh, you know, because his name didn't start with a J. (laughs) We used to have this thing about how uh, the qualified flying instructors were great at trimming the jet and the qualified weapons instructors were great at waging war in the jet. So to a certain Uh extent, you kind of look over there and go, well, he's only a QFI after (laughs) all. So he's bound to not see the missile. Yeah. Any uh, favorite or uh, least favorite features of the Jaguar? We sometimes call this our strengths and weaknesses part, but I think we've talked a little bit about some of each of those. But when you think about the Jaguar, and if you do get a chance to go do a high-speed taxi again and have enough fuel to get airborne, what are you going to love and what are you going to remember that you hate? Sounds like the takeoff could be one of them. (laughs) Yeah, no, actually, the takeoff was fun because it was an opportunity to fly around at 30 feet for a while because you had to. But the thing that I didn't like about the Jaguar was that you never really knew when it was going to kill you. And what I mean by that was that, for example, it was very sensitive to angle of attack. So if you pulled too much or pushed too much, and especially if you induce some roll while you were doing it, it would go. It would just cease flying and turn into a yo-yo or some crazy (laughs) fairground ride that ended up in a crash. The problem with that was not so much that it was a feature, but it wouldn't always give you warning. As an example, you could set the AOA audio warner to 17 units, but the thing would depart at six in some circumstances. (laughs) So the warning system was irrelevant because it wouldn't give you things like, you know, we're familiar with Buffett and things like that, you know, fly to the Buffett, don't go beyond it. It had none of that. So essentially, one minute you were flying and the next minute you just weren't. So that was a feature that I would change about the airplane. Uh, The feature I loved about it was that it made you a good pilot. And all of us, we didn't really shout about it, but we were very quietly confident that we were able to fly this thing and not crash it. It made us into good operators of the aircraft. And also, with the fact that it was a relatively low-technology airplane, it didn't have a lot of clever gizmos on it. But pretty much with a radio, a map, and a Mark I brain, you were able to build a picture of everything around you. And I really enjoyed that. A lot of wingmen, young wingmen, used to say, I got to a point where I could think about 50 miles ahead and there'd be a whole bunch of chat coming from AWACS on the radio and suddenly I'd just kick the formation left or right and they didn't have a clue why I'd done that until about two minutes later when they realized, ah, okay, he's just saved us from a threat that was coming down track. 
And that wasn't me being clever. That was the airplane making me work that hard to be able to generate that human capacity. I loved it for that. It didn't help you, which made us into better people. You know, D-Reg, this has been a lot of fun. I'm not about to wrap it up, but I just want to say to that point that I think what you just said is applicable to almost anything, right? Just think about the society we live in these days. And so many things are so easy that I wonder, I'm going to go on a tangent here, if we don't sometimes have things that we have to work a little harder for, because then we'll appreciate them, we'll understand them better, we'll be able to make that move that other people don't know that's going to matter in a couple of minutes. And I look around today and I just think, I don't know if we have it hard enough sometimes. I mean, you can get food delivered to your door, right? So why do you need to leave the house? You have internet. You can just sit there and eat and do what you want on the line. So I don't know. I think that's probably a strength. And actually, it goes right back to the motto of the RAF, which is per ardua ad astra. That's Latin for through hardship to the stars. It's not just a saying. You can almost characterize it as you can't achieve the stars unless you go through hardship. And hardship makes you a brighter shining star. So uh, I'm a big fan of that motto for that exact reason. Yeah, I'd say so. Well, you got to go through the crucible to have the right iron, right? So anyway, something like that. Well, so we ended up on our list of topics anyway, which is fine, but this has been fun. How about notoriety? Was there ever a performance team? Was it in any movies? I'm thinking James Bond must have flown one of these at some point. Come on. James Bond didn't qualify to fly the Jaguar. (laughs) He's not good enough. But the airplane was in Highlander, right at the end of the Highlander movie. Really? The main protagonist in Highlander is standing on the side of a hill in Scotland. Scotland was a place where we have these very steep V-sided valleys, which go up from sea level to about fifteen to 2,500 feet, typically. Mm-hmm. Some are a little bit higher. And we used to live in those valleys. You'll be familiar with the Star Wars scene at the end where he's thrashing down that trench to drop his photon torpedoes. Right. We used to have a valley in Scotland called Star Wars because it was very skinny. It was just wide enough to get inside it and fly along with the walls of the valley going past you at 500 miles an hour. And it was exactly that scene with a V-shaped valley and the Jaguar going down the valley at a million miles an hour, as we like to say. Yeah. So it was in that movie. More generally, I think, I used to remember, actually, it was notorious for its lack of performance. So quite often, there was this myth in the RAF where if you saw a crash, you couldn't be on the investigation team. So you would see people walking out the door when you were about to do some sort of crazy takeoff, hot, high and heavy. They were all watching it. So if you crashed, they wouldn't have to be on the board of inquiry. So it was notorious for dangerous takeoffs as well. So much that people literally used to put their pens down in their offices and come out and watch us come and go. Very stable at low level. So where we were allowed, we'd rush around at Northfoot 6 as much as we could or in the Weedo sphere as you and I would know it. Right. We've been uh, beating it up for takeoff performance. If you've done everything (laughs) on your flight and come back and you've uh, expended your ordinance or you're low on fuel, how was it crossing the fence and putting it on the runway? Was that pretty easy at that point? Again, it was something that to put it on the runway was easy. To put it on the runway accurately was not. Okay. So we used to have certain pilots. One was called Dan, uh, doesn't begin with a J, who always used the brake parachute. 
he never managed to get it down in the right place at the right AOA to actually stop it just using wheel brakes. Mm -hmm. So uh, there he was, always throwing the laundry out the back so that he could (laughs) slow down the aeroplane before going off the end. So again, but that challenge of putting it down in exactly the right spot at exactly the right AOA, just like in a way landing on a carrier, the difference was you weren't necessarily hitting a cable, but if you didn't put it down exactly where it needed to be, then you were having to mitigate the rest of the landing rollout because you're doing... I mean, as much as 170 over the fence, that's knots. If you were bringing it back heavy and you hadn't expended your ordnance and things like that, it could be pretty fast over the fence. So you needed to get rid of that energy. If you just overuse the brakes, of course, you'd land, you'd taxi in, you'd put the brakes on, look like a hero. And then about 10 seconds later, all the tires would pop and then you wouldn't look like so much of a hero. Yeah, but it should have double brakes, right? I mean, this thing has almost as many main wheels as your Airbus 350. So, I mean, uh, it should be, I would think, pretty good on the brakes. Yeah, it had four wheel brakes, but they were about the size of a sellotape or something like that. Uh, gotcha. uh, and they weren't particularly advanced, so they'd get very hot if you overuse them. <laughs> and then they'd heat up the tires and then the tires would pop. Well, they have those wet thermal plugs that melt and let them out instead of just popping like a balloon. So, D-Reg, I've never flown an aircraft with a drag chute. And so I'm going to hide this question like I'm concerned for my listeners who don't know. Mm -hmm. But in reality, I don't know. But I'll take a guess. What's the big deal with popping the chute, as it were? And my guess is now someone has to come out and collect it. And then the folks back at the line have to repack it. So probably if you pop it, was it a case of ale for the folks or or what was the deal with using the chute? Yes, you used to get a lot of moaning and groaning if you used the chute, because as exactly as you say, somebody had to go and collect it from the end of the runway and somebody had to repack it. That wasn't so bad as when you were landing at an airfield where you didn't have those ground services and you had to do it yourself. When you landed away from your home base, you would carry a spare brake parachute. The act of replacing the brake parachute in the back of the aircraft was very, very challenging. Again, another thing like close air support where you needed six hands. And there was this tradition of if you've packed your own chute, you have to pop it when you get back home to see if it worked. And the amount of times (laughs) that the whole chute came out and ended up on the runway still packed was probably about three times out of four. It just fell out of the back. (laughs) This is like sitting around the ready room, which is why I miss being in the military so much because you don't have this kind of fun uh, (laughs) at the airlines. But yeah, the uh, F-5, I think had some shoots and uh, you rarely saw it in Fallon when I was there and some F-16s have it and et cetera. But. And then it was very useful when we were in the Arctic oh. because of course the wheel brakes don't work very well when you're on snow. And we used to quite routinely land on snow up in Bardafoss. What it would do is essentially it would kill about 40 knots straight away. So you, the faster you put it out, the more effective it was. Mm. So if you were ever landing on snow, you would immediately stream the chute lose about 40, 50 knots, and then you could roll it out using a very gentle wheel braking, and then you wouldn't skid and end up off the side of the runway. You know, in some circumstances, it was pretty vital. Well, and I'm glad you just told that because it had an opportunity for me to search my brain for what I was going to ask you, which is, how about a hook? And come to think Mm. of it, I don't know too many British aircraft that will have a hook, but did the Jaguar have a hook for maybe a a long field barrier cable or something along those lines? Yeah, that's right. So the Jaguar had the hook, the Tornado had the hook. It was, um, I want to say, essentially a single shot capability. So you couldn't retract it like you can do on a Hornet. Anything above 50 knots 
of engaging the cable, then it would require stress checks on the aircraft. Essentially, single emergency use only, but you could take an approach end cable and you could take the long field cable equally, depending on the nature of the emergency. So typically, if you'd lost hydraulics where you'd lost nose wheel steering or something like that, you might take what we call the approach end cable. If it was just to stop the aeroplane going off the end, then you'd take the overrun cable. And if you took that at less than 50 knots, the engineers would come out to the aeroplane, stow it, and then you could taxi back in. But there was no way of retracting the cable once you'd extended it. Well, yeah, the Hornet is obviously built for different reasons with a hook. So yeah. even in the F-16 that I flew, that was the point is you can put it down with a switch, but that's about it. Then that means something yeah. bad is happening. So, all right, well, that makes sense. Hey, so I want to kind of change gears on you a little bit. I've already asked all the yeah. listener questions, which I normally do at the end, but you said you used to fly for the airlines. Now here in the States, it's all about seniority. And the sooner you get hired, the better off you'll be down the road when you get older. But if I understood you correctly, you said you used to do that. Are you just kind of on a leave of absence or did you quit or retire? Or And you don't have to name any names here because I'm not supposed to either. But if I decide this podcasting thing is so much fun and it's doing so well that I leave my company, well, that's it. If I Even if they were to take me back, they wouldn't. I'd probably have to start back at the beginning or with another airline. But are you still kind of on the books somewhere? No, no. That was a one-way street for me. So essentially, I did 13 years in the airlines. I flew initially the A320. Then I went to the Boeing 777, Boeing 787 Mm. after that, and the A350. And actually, coming back to the military appealed to me because although the lifestyle is a little bit more austere, I miss the people. I miss the ethos. I miss the fact that you can be part of something that's bigger than yourself. While I was, in fact, COVID sort of started it. I didn't leave because of COVID, but essentially I started off on a leave of absence from the airline when COVID hit. And I went out to Cyprus for four and a half months to be the COVID guy for British Forces Cyprus. And while I was out there, a friend of mine essentially rang me up and gave me this ops and ops planning job that was an offer I couldn't refuse. So I rejoined the military as active reserve and left the airline at that stage. So yeah, the next thing for me, if I'm going to fly anything bigger than the trainers, would be to use my license to f- probably fly, you know, your twin turboprop kind of things just for a bit of fun mm-hmm. or as part of the work I'm doing now. I've had this dream of retiring to Alaska and having a float plane and using that <laughs> as a runaround. We'll see if that happens. Yeah. Well, I don't think you're the only one who's ever had that dream. And a lot of people, it stays there, but a lot of people do make it. So I hope you do. And if you do, please give me a call because I want to go up there and fly fish. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. I've done that once. It took me a whole day to catch one grayling uh, up in Alaska. So uh, yeah, I'm pretty bad at it. That and golf are probably my worst sports. (laughs) Well, at least you've tried that. I still haven't even tried golf. Well, it's not true. I've tried it, but I just... I don't recommend it. (laughs) Not unless you have a lot of time and patience, but uh, no, fly fishing is fun because it's in beautiful places, right? So I always say, if you go, you have a good day. If you actually catch something, you have a great day. So I totally agree with that. Fantastic. All right, D-Reg, well, this has been a lot of fun. What's the future hold for you? More of the same? More of the same, I think. I should be going home from Ramstein in, uh, I guess, two or three weeks. I'm going to be, my next job, in essence, is to go and embark upon the HMS Prince of Wales, our brand new carrier, and do a week on there, figuring out what's the best way of using it with our combat air and our helicopter assets that we embark upon it. So that's going to be super exciting. We've got F-35Bs on it. 
We've got the Merlin helicopters on it. We can also embark things like Chinook and Apache. It's going to be all about developing its concept of employment. I don't know. Somebody appears to trust me with that. Uh, I hope I don't mess it up. (laughs) I was just formulating the question in my mind because I'm sitting here thinking, all right, here's a gentleman with amazing experiences, but none of it's on the water. How do they expect you to suddenly be a naval expert? I have no idea. I'm just going to go there and do the best I can. You know, I hear they have rum on board our uh, our ships. I, I know your carriers are dry. That's right. The Royal Navy is well known for its fantastic cocktail party. So that's something that I am proficient at. I'm not so sure about uh, marine or maritime aviation, but I'll do my best. Well, you can't just go out there because they have rum, for heaven's sakes. All right. Well, here's your homework. Are you ready for this, uh, D-Reg? This will make you the expert. It's a podcast called the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Maybe you've heard of it. And you're going to want to go check out episodes 11 through 15. Okay, 11 through 15. I'll write that down. Aircraft carriers, part one and two. Day carrier landings, part one and two. And night carrier landings. Once you listen to that, you will be the imminent expert. (laughs) Fantastic. I have to say that for all of my fighter career, I kept every year I would ask to go on exchange and fly the Hornet uh, for that exact reason. I didn't fancy single-engined airplanes for the obvious reason. I loved the Hornet as an airplane, fantastically capable in its era. And I really, really, really wanted to uh, land on a carrier and get thrown off the end as much as possible. But sadly, I never got to do it. Well, the Jaguar sounds like it was a single-engine aircraft if you were in the landing pattern and turning, from what you said before. But uh, yeah, <laughs> right. not too many uh, people get that opportunity. But we did have one of your mates on the show talking about that, uh, Paul Tremling, I think it was, a Harrier pilot. Tremling, yes, that's yeah. right. He was on the Sea Harrier to start with old Tremors. Came and flew the uh, Echo. That's right. So, Talking of cocktail parties, ask him about that night in Elgin that we had when we were on the weapons course. Oh, dear me. He kind of burst my bubble because one of the things I asked him was, hey, so you've flown all these different kinds of ways of landing an airplane on the ship. Which is the hardest? And I was sitting there bristling, thinking it's night traps. And he goes, oh, probably day landing. So I said, oh, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> but it's because of the pattern that we fly and it's more dynamic than the straight right. in at night. So. He tremors, one of the best pilots I've ever known in my life. So if he finds it hard, then I'll believe it. Okay. Well, he must have uh, ice water in his veins, but all right. Well, (laughs) D-Reg, this is a lot of fun. It was definitely worth uh, chasing you around. You're a busy guy, but uh, we're going to count you as a friend of the show. No, it's quite good. I don't mean (laughs) to call you out, but hey, it's that motto you said. I already forgot it, but I had to work hard. Now that I'm here, I appreciate it better. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Per ardua (laughs) ad astra. This has been great. I just want to thank you for your time and for your service to the queen and you got to meet the queen. So that's pretty cool for helping us out here. We're going to call this uh, part of our UK month. So we've had your friend Blackie on for the lightning and uh, we're still working on the Spitfire. We're going to see if we can get that. Otherwise, it's been a lot of fun having you here today to talk all about the Jaguar. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks very much. All right. Well, I don't know about you. My funny bone is aching. D-Reg, that was awesome. Thank you so much again. And especially since you're on active duty, taking the time. And so we will have a disclaimer about who he speaks for. And as a lead into that, by the way, it's just him. Now, I cannot imagine operating a jet fighter on a grass strip. That'd be pretty cool. Of course, all the fighters I ever flew were intended to be landed on steel or cement. So that's probably why. But yeah, I can see where in a Cold War gone hot situation, you're going to want to be able to operate on roads, grass strips, whatever it takes to get your aircraft airborne for your defenses. 
Now, his comments about 1v1 game plans, by the way, I thought that was really great, but I didn't necessarily think it was unique to the Jag. I mean, you always want to maximize your own strengths no matter what you're flying, and you want to minimize your opponents no matter what he's flying. But you have to know yours and you have to know his. And Sun Tzu said something about that, in a sense, way back when. So I just appreciate that he said that, as well as how important BFM training is. Because, yes, for aircrew, it does improve your confidence in the aircraft and your proficiency, especially when you're going to do other things like max perform to defend against a missile that's fired at you or just to know what your aircraft can do. And that is why Top Gun still places so much emphasis on 1v1 training. Now, you might notice I did forget to ask D-Reg a couple things. One was the performance. He told me later in an email that he had had one up to 45,000 feet and another at a Mach 1.1, and he's pulled up to 7Gs. And then, frankly, I think this was a first for me. I just flat out forgot to ask him about his call sign. Now, you could probably figure it out. It's a play on his name, and that's true. But there's sometimes great stories around it. And so, again, D-Reg emailed me later when I asked him and said, yeah, they took D slash or dash, I should say, R-E-G, and they moved the R to the other side. So that was like D-R dash E-G, like Dr. Egg. Then it was just the doctor. Then it was just the egg. But in the end, it was D-Reg. So, yep, pretty standard shenanigans among fighter pilots. Well, before we wrap up today, I want to tell you about a book I read recently. It's called Five Nickels, True Story of the Desert Storm Heroics and Sacrifice of Air Force Captain Steve Phyllis. And it was written by former F-15 pilot turned Florida Air National Guard JAG, Brigadier General Jim Demrest, who joins us now. Hello, Boots. Welcome to the show. Jello, good afternoon. and Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You know, I have to admit to you, Boots, when this book arrived, I was about to throw it on the pile of books that I get, and I decided to crack the cover because of a personal note you wrote. It pulled me in, and before I knew it, I devoured it over a long weekend. Tell me, what inspired you to chronicle the life and death of Steve, who, as I understand, you first met as a classmate at the Air Force Academy? Yeah, I did. And in uh, 1991, uh, as Desert Storm was raging, I was an F-15 pilot at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico. And when I heard of Steve's shoot down and ultimately his death, I started to look for information. And Jello, as you might remember, the military doesn't do the same type of investigation for a combat loss as it does for a safety loss during peacetime. And so there was very little information chronicled about what happened around his shoot down. So I reached out to his parents, got their permission to investigate it. And what I uncovered was an audio tape that chronicled an incredibly heroic mission and the more I learned about Steve, the more I wanted to find out about Steve and his Desert Storm heroics. As we know, the coalition's decisive Desert Storm victory didn't come without a cost, and Steve is included, as we're reminded in your book. What made that 30th combat mission he flew so dangerous? So as an A-10 fighter pilot, most of his sorties for the first 29 were flown within 30 miles or so of the Saudi Arabia-Kuwait border. But on the 15th of February of 1991, the A-10s, for the first time in the war, were tasked to fly 100 miles north. And for your listeners who know anything about the A-10, while it carries a lot of firepower, it doesn't carry it very fast. He and his wing and Rob Sweet were going to spend a long time going to and from the target area over enemy territory. What made it even more dangerous was that he was fragged against Saddam Hussein's elite Republican Guard unit, the Medina Division. It was a 10,000 troop strong unit that was assessed to be at least 85% combat effective because being so far north of the border, it had been spared a lot of the onslaught from the coalition air attack. So between being dug in, being far away from the action, 
and being equipped with Iraq's most sophisticated surface-to-air equipment and well-trained in its use, it was a really dangerous mission. And Steve and his wingman both knew so before they got airborne that day. Well, and that's what's so great about Five Nickels, because you tell the story of Steve all throughout his life up to this mission and the bond that he has with his wingman. So I want you to tell me, what is it about that flight lead and wingman bond in military aviation specifically that is so important and powerful and would motivate Steve to take such risks as he did on that day? Yeah, you know, Steve was the flight commander who actually did the combat pairings for Desert Storm. And the idea with combat pairs was take the most experienced fighter pilot, pair him with the least experienced fighter pilot. And Steve being the high time A-10 guy, paired himself with young Lieutenant Rob Sweet. It's a little hard to put into words, but when you willingly place your life in the hands of another human being, it creates a bond so strong that it's hard to describe. And the flight lead wingman bond and contract is very simple. The flight lead's going to get us to the fight, get us through the mission, and get us home. The wingman is going to support that effort, be ready to take the lead, but also ensure that the flight lead gets home. And so anything that gets in the way of flight lead and wingman coming home, such as Rob Sweet's shoot down, would provide incredible motivation for Steve to take risks above and beyond the call of duty. No doubt. And on that note, Boots, you know as well as I, no fighter pilot has been awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor since Vietnam. We've had a lot of combat operations since then. And I understand you are part of a committee advocating for the upgrade of Steve's Silver Star to the Medal of Honor. How's that effort going? It's going really well. And make no mistake, Steve's Silver Star proves the fact that he's a hero. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the Medal of Honor, above and beyond the call of duty, at great risk to life and limb, all the things that Steve did that day by orbiting over his down wingman for almost four minutes, which as a fighter pilot, Jello, you know, is an eternity in a combat environment, right? Absolutely. And to do that overhead was nothing short of remarkable. Thankfully, I've been given access to an audio tape and been able to reconstruct the facts. And quite frankly, the Medal of Honor upgrade effort is going really well. We have sworn statements from his wingman, Rob Sweet, from other A-10 pilots overhead, from his wing commander, Sandy Sharp, from everybody who could contribute information. In addition, we've recently secured the direct support of a very prominent United States senator. And I'm not at liberty to talk about who that is right now, but the Medal of Honor upgrade process requires a member of Congress to endorse the package. And we recently secured a really important endorsement, one of many, I'm sure, but it's going to help get us over the starting line through what will be a long and difficult process, but worth the effort. Fantastic. Well, please keep us posted on how that goes. Once again, the book is called Five Nickels, True Story of the Desert Storm Heroics and Sacrifice of Air Force Captain Steve Phyllis. And it debuts today, February 15th, 2022, the 31st anniversary of Steve's death. And as I understand, he was approaching his 31st birthday. Boots, before you go, where can people find the book and more information about it? Sure. The book is available for pre-order and order once it goes live, both hard copy and audio through Amazon, through Barnes & Noble. You can also go to jimbootsdemarest.com to not only order the book, but track our progress toward social media. And if you search Jim Boots Demarest on Facebook or LinkedIn, I'm pretty easy to find and you can get the book any one of those ways. And what I'd ask your listeners to do is get the book and help share the story because the world needs to know about the heroics of Air Force Captain Steve Phyllis. Hear, hear. All right, Boots. Well, thanks for joining us today. Best wishes with the book and your efforts on behalf of Steve's incredible legacy. Thanks, Jello, and thanks for having me on today. 
Okay then, before we wrap up today, I want to introduce our new Patreon strike leads, Neil Phillips and Brian Brake. I want to thank them and all the other 480-ish Patreon supporters who help keep the show going and also get to enjoy those exclusive perks over there. I do want to remind everyone the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or the Ministry of Defense or their components. Alrighty, well... I hope you're having a good February. That will do it for this episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. We're still figuring some things out for what's coming up next, but one way or the other, we'll be back in 10 days for the final installment of UK Month. Until then, you take care of yourselves, and we'll see you. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com. Or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.